Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eternity, where love never fails. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is the Eternity Bible Study Podcast, where we walk through the Bible together every weekday, Monday through Friday. We're podcasting from here in the United States and in Zambia with a goal to share our thoughts and encourage one another as we read God's Word together verse by verse. My co-host in Zambia, Batali, and I are both listening to Through the Bible podcast and then sharing our thoughts and encouragement with you. From America to Africa and everywhere else, God is in control. As always, our attribution goes to Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. So if you've ever wanted to try to read the Bible every day, we hope you can join us. We're regular people just like you, trying to learn more about God and walk in step with His Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bible, feel free to read along, and if not, no problem. We'll put it all together for you. So let's get started. Today we are going to be uh, continuing our journey through 2 Thessalonians, and we'll be starting and putting in in verse 3 in 1 Thessalonians and taking it down through verse 12. And I must confess, like I did last week, I was I really, really am enjoying this study of first and second Thessalonians. I learned so much from First Thessalonians, and I can't wait to walk through Second Thessalonians with you. Now remember, this church was a young church. This church was located in Thessalonica, in northern Greece, in the province of Macedonia. Paul was there less than a month, and these people were just on fire for the Word of God. And they were so on fire, probably everybody around there knew it. Because, in fact, when Paul was writing the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he was saying, The word of your faith has spread through all the region, and to the point where wherever we go, I don't even have to say anything. Because people are already talking about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, because this church was so on fire, there was probably a ruckus being raised. Of course, the people who don't want to hear the gospel or reject the gospel or are jealous by the gospel, they get upset and then they chase Paul out of town. So Paul has to leave Thessalonica and he has to run down to Corinth, which is in most likely where this letter was written, and he, uh, which is in southern Greece, that's in the province of Achaia, Achaia. And so he's writing this letter because he heard word from uh, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy that the faith of these people was not shaken, that they were doing, they were doing fine. And that's a good thing. But he's having to write these letters to probably um, address issues. And he's, it's almost like, Big Christian Issues 101, or Big Christian Principles 101. I mean, he's, he's laying down for this church. Can you imagine if you, if you only heard three sermons at a church, and that's it. You didn't know any more about Christianity than what somebody was able to teach three different times. How would you... How would you live your Christian life? What would you do? How would you think about who you are in relationship to the Lord? 
you know it's so it's these people hadn't heard a lot but they were putting it into practice they were already starting but there was there were issues that Paul's trying to clear up he's trying to he's trying to perfect them in what the, in their knowledge of Jesus Christ and so a lot of this has to do with big Christian themes like faith, love, and hope. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God, and that is producing a work in you. This work of faith, that's you. And faith, the work of faith is what faith, what the Word of God does in your heart when you hear it. And it produces faith in the Word of God. And so through that, you have faith in the Lord Jesus and what He did for you too. That produces a change in you. And that faith, that faith that you have is a faith towards God, towards the Word of God that you hear. And then this other next big principle is love. And they, Paul describes it as a labor of love. And that faith produces whatever works that you do, whatever you think and say and do, whatever you uh, however you walk, however you live, it is a life that is to be directed as a Christ-like life. That's how you live. That's how you express yourself towards others. It is an expression of love. And that is a reflection of the Christ-like nature that you have from the changes in you from the Word of God that you hear and receive to make you more and more Christ-like. So, McGee points out that faith is an expression that we we have towards God from His work of faith in us. And this love is an expression towards others that we have as a result of uh, the Word of God affecting us. And then this third big theme was the steadfast hope. The steadfast hope is in Jesus Christ, is in Jesus Christ's return. And this steadfast hope is that uh, we have a resurrection in Jesus Christ because the gospel message says that if we believe in Him, we share in His death on the cross, and then therefore we will share in His resurrection. We will have His righteousness in place of our sin. And so that's where our hope is. And so it is this, um, it is this process of, of um, waiting on the Lord, being patient in the Lord, and it allows us to live a life down here under grace. And we are not under the law anymore. We are under grace. God has given us status as sons and daughters through the resurrection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this other big uh, concept was our sanctification. In other words, the Word of God comes to us in power, the power of God. The Word of God comes to us with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the Word of God comes with, with us as with the conviction of truth. This is the conviction in our hearts that it is true. It is the conviction of the Word of God that is the Word of God being Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth. And therefore, this sanctification process is the Holy Spirit's work in us, perfecting us to be more and more Christ-like as we live our lives. 
And so um, as we live our lives in our hope, in our anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what he expands on uh, towards the end of 1 Thessalonians. He talks about the rapture of the church. And again, as we saw, and in, in, uh, indulge me for just a minute as I, I try to fill in uh, again from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, he will bring with him the, the, those who have already passed. And this is not their bodies. He's bringing in their spirit with him. So we've learned that there's a spiritual component to um, people and a physical component. And even though the physical component has died, or like asleep, and of course, with Jesus Christ, you know, death is just by, like sleeping to the body. But he already has the spirits, the spirit of those with him that he will bring back. And he says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, just a word, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. In other words, we're not going to be with the Lord any sooner just because we're alive. Because the Lord's going to be bringing them with Him personally. Those people are going to be with the Lord even though they've already, they've already died. Their physical bodies is just like being asleep. But He will bring the spirits of those with Him personally. And the Lord said, I will not lose one single sheep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Again, the Lord himself, with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. That mean, It doesn't mean a trumpet's going to blow or an angel's going to say it. No, it's his voice sounds like an archangel and sounds like a trumpet of God. Just a word. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's saying comfort or encourage one another with this. And this word, when it says we who are alive will be caught up, that's what the word rapture comes from because that phrase caught up originally was translated from the Hebrew into the Latin using the word rapturo. That's where this word phrase rapture comes from. And that rapturo was in Latin was translated into the Greek harpazio, and that means to be caught up. That's how it's translated in English. To be caught up, to be grabbed, to be seized. That's how fast it will happen for those whose bodies are asleep. They will rise, and those who are alive while he comes back will be caught up. And that's how that expression rapture comes from, where it comes from. So the word rapture technically is not in the Bible, but you hear people use it a lot, and that's where that, that phrase comes from. Very interesting to me. 
how that comes from, because I've always wondered. So, um, he talks about this, this, this rapturing of the believers, rapturing of the church, those who believe in him. And then he talks about the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, as we have seen um, back in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. This day of the Lord, that's the day of vengeance on the Lord. That's the day where the Lord will come back and punish those evil for what they've done. And he'll come back in judgment. But this great tribulation period is going to be a period of destruction that he's described it like his labor pains for for many. And so then um, after this time, um, he's then um, in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about trying to uh, encourage one another and build one another up again. He, he talks about the the rapture, and then he says, encourage one another about this. And then he talks about the great tribulation time. And he says, he's saying this to you not to scare anybody, but to build one another up. And then he talks about them becoming more and more Christ-like. And I believe that these are uh, things that the Holy Spirit will be doing as people try to walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit. And the Spirit will be uh, working in every believer to try to become more and more Christ-like. And that's where we find 2 Thessalonians opening up. So why does he feel the need to maybe write another letter to the Thessalonians? Well, he's probably clearing up more stuff. And uh, so we start uh, here talking about the judgment in Christ's coming. So it, it looks like he's trying to fill in a little bit more information in this uh, letter talking about when Jesus Christ comes back because these people um, might have been freaking out because um, times were certainly very tough. You know, the Romans were there. The Romans were persecuting Christians. Paul was just run out of town and uh, their faith was still good, but they're looking around. These people who had only heard the gospel message maybe three times from Paul, they'd probably heard it before from other people, but they'd only, you know, gotten formal teaching from Paul three times. And they're probably saying, well, maybe, you know what? He's right. You know, everything we he's saying we believe, but times are tough. Has the great tribulation already come? You know, has Jesus already come and, and, uh, and taking the church already back to heaven with him, did we miss out? Because we're we're in the middle of a great tribulation. It looks like you know, and uh, so maybe Jesus has already come back and we've missed him. And they were might have been freaking out. And Paul was writing this letter to sort of say him, you know, don't freak out. And he was probably saying, look, suffering is is a part of life. You know, and believing in Jesus um, never promises you uh, that you, that the absence of trouble. As a matter of fact, trouble will occur if you take Christ, uh, because the world rejects Christ. The world has rejected Christ. So, if you believe in Christ, the world's going to reject you, or you might have discipline from a father as he 
disciplines his children. You may have trouble in your life, but that trouble in your life exists to make you more and more Christ-like, to make you more and more dependent on him. And that is to be distinguished from, we want to have distinction from uh, the trouble that the wicked are going to get in their life. So um, that is punishment, you know, and that'll occur, you know, um, after Christ's judgment. It will occur during this great tribulation period. Perhaps I've heard McGee says this great tribulation period that occurs after Christ takes his church out of the earth, uh, it might exist to... um, Make people turn away from evil, maybe one last time, before Christ comes in judgment. Uh, But this great tribulation period, like labor pains, is there. Uh, Christ knows who his church is, and he's already taken them out. But, um, But in any event, this period will occur. And um, so I think Paul's writing this letter to to explain to them a little bit and maybe fill in a little bit more information about what this great tribulation is and how that distinguishes between the suffering that this Thessalonian church was already going through. So suffering um, is something that we all will have to see. We all have to be disciplined when when things come upon us. And... uh, I'll kick off just for a second before we get into this study. It's something that um, McGee said this morning that he quoted Psalm 119, uh, verse 71. It said, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Wow. Can you, isn't that amazing there? Um, sometimes we have affliction in our life. Again, God gives us this so that we can become dependent on Him, so that we can lean on Him even more. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it said, Beloved, don't, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Therefore, John 19, let those who suffer according to to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter is saying the trials are there to help us be like Christ. Or the trials may be there for us because we already are like Christ. But whatever the case, we need to suffer whatever trials this world has to glorify God 
as Christ glorified God. So with that backdrop, we now will put in at first at Second Thessalonians verse three. Again, um, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of everyone of you for one another is increasing. So first, he is saying he is continuously praying. Always giving thanks to God. That is a window into Paul's prayer life. That he's always praying and that he's always praying for others. Praying is central to Paul's life. You see from this letter, Paul can't get anything done without prayer. Paul can't accomplish God's will without prayer. He is not only praying, he is always praying. He's praying for others. So to get the will of God done, you have to trust in him and you have to be talking with him constantly. You have to be praying constantly. Prayer is like worship. Prayer is a dependence um, and I just heard in church um, that um, I think it was John Calvin they were quoting or Martin Luther one. I can't remember which one, but they were saying the sum total of a man is the time he spent on his knees. Like, what's that all? What's that all about? That what that was meaning is, is if you take a look. At the time, the amount of time in your whole life that you spent in prayer or spent on your knees, that would be the sum total of your life and everything else wasn't really worth it. What would your life look like? And for many of us, the time that we spend in prayer is such a limited time compared to everything else that we do during the day. And perhaps to God the Father, our Father in heaven, that we we just don't talk to God very much. But yet we run around like Christians or want to be Christians, except we're not we're not even talking with the Father who has the power to save us from the dead. We're claiming Jesus Christ's name. Jesus Christ was in constant prayer. We're trying to be more and more like Jesus Christ when we read our Bible in the New Testament. We talk about Paul or we read Second Thessalonians. Paul was in prayer constantly to accomplish the gospel, to represent the gospel. He was constantly in prayer. He was in prayer for the people that need to hear the gospel. He was in prayer for himself to give the gospel. He was in prayer for where to go with the gospel message. I mean, he ended up in uh, Ephesus and then um, Philippi and then Thessalonica. This is all in Europe as a result of prayer of where to go. He was still in Asia Minor when when he was instructed to cross over and head into Europe. He didn't have an agenda. It was through prayer that tells Paul where to go. It was prayer that sustains Paul when he's in prison. 
All of this is accomplished through prayer. So we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers. He's telling you not only what he does, that he gives thanks, but he's saying this is what everyone needs to do. We ought to always, we ought to. This is what he's saying. Everyone needs to do this. We ought to always be in prayer. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. It's the right thing to do. That's how the job gets done. Because of your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. So faith, that's from hearing the word of God and love is the expression of the word of God outward towards others in a Christ-like manner. Every one of you, the love is increasing. Therefore, verse 4, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So he references faith. He references love that he mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, but he doesn't use the word hope exactly. But he uses that steadfastness phrase, okay, because he said steadfast hope last time in chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. But he, he says steadfastness. So, Remember, our hope is in Jesus Christ. So, their steadfastness, yep, they're steadfast, all right, but they may not be steadfast in complete understanding of what Jesus Christ is, is doing because their, their, um, their misunderstanding might have been that Jesus Christ had already come and gone. So maybe they're they're steadfast, all right, but it it may not be exactly in Jesus Christ anymore. They may be hoping in something a little bit different. Okay, they're steadfast, all right, and they're holding strong because they're under persecution right now. Things are coming; life is coming down on them, and Paul wants to. Paul wants them to understand that their faith is growing, their love is growing, but he wants them to grow in the steadfast hope of Jesus Christ. And faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. And he's wanting to let them know again that the persecutions they are having and the, and the uh, trials that they're having and the afflictions that they're having, the, they're having them because time is rough. But this is not evidence that Jesus Christ is come and gone. They're steadfast, all right. But they still can have a hope in Jesus Christ. Because He has not returned yet. Because when He does, He will not lose a single sheep. Every single believer in Jesus Christ will be taken up with Him before this great tribulation, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians. You don't have to worry. With just a, a command of His voice, it'll sound like an archangel, it'll sound like a trumpet. But the, the dead will rise first, and then those who are still alive will be taken up, will be caught up with Him. 
or raptured with him, if you will, in the clouds to meet the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord. So he's saying, you know, he's trying to reassure them. It looks like he's talking now about uh, trials that people have to go through. And he's also trying to fill in about Christ's coming. So let's proceed in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Okay? This is evidence that there's a righteous judge going to be coming because you're suffering right now. And because of this, you're considered worthy of the kingdom of God that you have to go through these trials. These trials doesn't, doesn't mean you missed out on the kingdom of God. These trials are, are evidence to you that God thinks you are worthy of his kingdom, that you have to face trials. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, God, he's saying God thinks it is worthy, that you're worthy when you have to go through these afflictions. And that is evidence to you that God thinks you're worthy when times are tough. Because God's going to repay those who afflict you, and God's going to give you relief for what you have done and had to go through. Verse 8, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So he's saying when that great tribulation period comes, God will definitely inflict the vengeance on those who don't know God. Okay, God's going to be in charge of that tribulation not the Roman soldiers, and not the guys who want to beat you up, and not uh, whatever hardship you're going through with, with uh, whether it's cancer or a broken leg or physical afflictions of a stroke or, or you know something like that. That's all hardship that you have to go through. That's all the, that's all perhaps suffering that you might have to go through. And that's evidence that God is thinking you're worthy of His kingdom. Because if you have the ability to suffer for God's glory, you are doing that um, to honor God. God is considering you worthy of His kingdom when you have to go through things like that. So God, and McGee's pointing out, there's this distinction between discipline for his children and in and, and uh, that walking through trials for the glory of God as Jesus did that's worthy living for the kingdom if that comes your way or the distinction between punishment of the wicked the punishment of the wicked is different than the discipline that we go through 
And he just finished this letter in uh, 1 Thessalonians um, in chapter 5 towards the end how we become more and more Christ-like. To esteem those who are over you, who have uh, who have um, a leadership position over you, or be at peace among yourselves, or admonish the idle, or encourage the faint-hearting, hearted, or helping the weak, or being patient with all, or seeking to do good, or rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, not quitting the Spirit, not despising the Word of God or the prophets, testing everything in discernment, holding fast what is good, abstaining from every form of evil, praying for us, greeting all the brothers in Christ, and reading the Word of God to the brothers. Those things that he talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, those are things that we work on in the Holy Spirit. Not quenching the Spirit, but working with the Spirit to become more and more Christ-like. And so... There is this distinction between um, trials and tribulations and discipline that comes from God's children and that of being punished for wickedness. And so they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is verse 9. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So I think he's trying to let them know that what they've been going through is not uh, the absence of the Lord in the period of the Great Tribulation that he was talking about back in First Thessalonians. He's wanting them. To, he's wanting to let them know that they're walking worthy of the kingdom of God. Their faith is growing. Their love is growing for everyone, and they're steadfast in their faith. But they want to put they can still put their hope in the Lord because the Lord has not come. The rapture has not occurred. When he comes on that day, okay, he's telling them they haven't the Lord hasn't come yet. Okay? Verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So, he's saying again that um, God is not promising the absence of hardship. God is promising His presence with you as you go through those hardships. And when you live in a life, when you live your life worthy, depending on Him, you are worthy of the kingdom of God. To this end, we always pray for you. He's always praying again. He comes, He circles back. He says, to this end, as a result, 
We're in constant prayer for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fully and may, I'm sorry, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So again, he's talking about the trials and tribulations that they're going through. And I think he's addressing that head on because they were, they were scared. They were concerned that they've missed out, that they weren't good enough maybe, and that they didn't do something good enough. And that Jesus had already come and gone. And what do they need to, what are they hoping for now? You know, and he's, he's sort of a roundabout way saying, no, you still have hope. And that what you're having to go through now is to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. He says it twice. He says it in verse 5, then he drops down and says it again in verse 11. He starts out saying, we're constantly praying for you. In verse 3, and he drops down and says it again in verse 11. To this end, we're always praying for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. How? Through all the dependency that we have to have on him, through the hope in Jesus Christ. We talk about faith. We talk about love. This is hope. Hope through the hardship. That makes you worthy of his calling. And every work of faith by his power. So everything you do based on faith in Jesus Christ is done by his power, not your power and not my power. It's done by his power. And when we lean on his power in that dependency, we're worthy of his calling. Isn't that beautiful? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. What is our hope in? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He's really laying out what hope looks like and feels like through hardship. It's a hope in Jesus Christ. And that hope in Jesus Christ through hardship is you being worthy of his calling. Because you're leaning on his power and not your power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So he's in you and you are in him because you are abiding in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're under grace. You're not under law. So it's this hope in Jesus Christ. It's this hope in Jesus Christ, no matter what the hardship is. And I'll circle back on a couple of favorite verses here. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus Christ and nothing else. It's hope in Jesus Christ through our hardship that we may be leading a life worthy of his calling and do every good work of faith by his power. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And in John chapter 15, verse 4, another verse, Abide in me 
and I in you. Jesus is saying, It's his power in you that helps you live. He lets you have the same relationship to him as he has with God the Father. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. We can't do anything by ourselves. We can't go through hardship by ourselves. We can't do the gospel message by ourselves. We can't do any good work by ourselves. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. For this, I'm sorry, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In other words, our abiding in the Lord Jesus And Him in us allows us to do good work. Not us by ourselves. We can't do anything. And when we do that, when we do good works through our faith and our dependency on the power of Jesus Christ, not our own power, God's glorified, as it says in 2 Thessalonians verse 12. God's glorified. And again, it reflects it in John chapter 15 verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus Christ wants to abide in you, wants to live in you. So again, that word abide that we see in John chapter 15, verse 4, it translates to mean remain or to wait or to wait for or to await. So we're waiting on Christ in us. And Christ is waiting with us in Him spiritually until He comes back. Okay? And when he does, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he will be bringing back those who are with him, the spirit of those who are with him, because we're abiding in him. So when we go through our hardship, that's what hope is. Hope is that waiting in the Lord, that waiting 
in the Lord, that patient being patient in the Lord. Being sanctified by the Holy Spirit as we live a life worthy of Him, as we as we rely on His power in us, as He is abiding in us through our hardship to glorify God. So from what an amazing, amazing um, study. Paul is just really um, bringing into such clarity this time that, um, that we'll be uh, waiting in him through whatever trials and tribulations that we have. It's certainly not the great tribulation. We don't have to worry about the thief coming in the night, as he said in First Thessalonians, or worrying about the timing of events, because Jesus will take care of his own. And then that great tribulation will occur. But till then, we abide in him and him in us. So for me to all of you, I hope this was encouraging. God bless you. Keep your heart centered on Christ. I'll see you tomorrow next time as we continue our study. Now I'll turn the rest of the podcast over to my co-host in Zambia, Matali. Matali, I hope you're doing great. And I can't wait to listen to your take on this, this awesome teaching as well. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.